Often people recoil from grief, perhaps even avoid asking questions about grief, reading about it, and may even decide not to listen to this episode today. However, those who are experiencing grief may be desperate for support and understanding for an opportunity to feel understood. Today, at Life's Dirty Little Secrets, we will be talking about grief, but through a personal story from our dear guest, Mahima Gupta. We're all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves must disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Mahima is a clinical psychologist living in Singapore, currently working in private practice, and has over 10 years of experience in her work. She's also a parent of two wonderful little children and is here to talk to us about her experience of grief. Welcome, Mahima. Thank you, Emma. I'm also here with my dear co-host, Chris McCulley. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Glad to be here. So talking about grief is not an area we often step into, and there's a certain sort of awkwardness, and it's uncomfortable, and for many it can feel daunting to ask about grief, which leaves those of us grieving very alone. Little about grief is talked about in public. And one advantage about being a therapist is that we know that it's okay and normal to feel such intense emotions, but it can still feel incredibly hard. So Mahima has kindly offered to join us today to tell us a little bit about her personal experience. So thank you very much, Mahima, for being here today. And I wonder if you could talk from your experience of what has it been like to grieve? I know there's been, you know, a bit of it in your life. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while and I think it's been an interesting journey. I think grief is a large part of what made me become a therapist in the first place. So one of the first significant experiences of loss that I had was when I lost my best friend to suicide when I was in ninth grade. And this was shortly after I had moved cities and, you know, there were no mobile phones at the time. So keeping in contact was tougher. And a few months later, I came to know that she'd actually passed away under suspicious circumstances. And I remember, you know, in frantically calling her, calling her home phone to ask that, you know, I'm hearing something very random and nonsensical and, you know, what's going on? And her mom picked up the phone and she just ended up sobbing as soon as I introduced my name. And she said to me, you know, that if, if I hadn't moved, her daughter would still be alive. And she was so lonely and, you know, and yeah, so... And of course, that's something that hit me really hard, in addition to losing my best friend, that some way I was responsible for it, but at least I could have saved her if I hadn't moved. Goodness. And yeah, so I think that was my, that was the first jolt of grief that I really remember. And it was also something that understandably I wasn't allowed to dwell, to dwell too much on. 
my exams were coming up and I'm a very sensitive person. You know, I would likely have just dipped with it quite badly. So I remember my parents just pushing me towards where this has happened. You can't do anything about it. And okay, you know, move on, focus on your exams, focus on what needs to be done. And yeah, and similarly, so I think soon after my maternal grandfather passed away, and I think it was it was pretty much the same thing that I was having very important exams at the time. And it was just very much that, okay, focus on what needs to be done. So that's, I guess, been one of my main coping mechanisms to focus on the tasks that need to be done instead of collapsing into the grief. But yeah, so that's that was the beginning of it. And that's something that I did carry with me for a very long time. The guilt, the confusion, the anger. That's right. You know, what happened? And no matter what happened, how could she do that to herself? How could she do that to her parents? And so I remember struggling with empathy at the time for my friend because I was just so angry. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that congruence, isn't it? It's like I'm hearing you having all these feelings as a young person, particularly confusing, and you were told to stop feeling. And incongruence that often people describe with grief between, you know, how people expect them to be feeling and how they're actually feeling. That's really tough. We kind of start to ask ourselves, you know, are we crazy? Is there something wrong with us that we have these feelings when everybody else seems to be thinking that I shouldn't be feeling like? I think it was also that people got that this was big and this was bad. But then it's uncomfortable and it's scary for anyone to sit with that grief. And they, of course, they want you to be okay. And sometimes they end up rushing the process a bit. That, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, this is really painful and this happened. But well, now what? So I think this whole sitting with the grief and sitting with the pain and sitting with the tears it's actually really hard for people. It really is. It really is quite overwhelming. And that's why people don't tend to talk about grief. Because it is very painful. Because the reality is that most of us will grieve. We all know that if we haven't already. And most of us don't want to sit with that possibility and that pain and the, the thought of losing someone we love and we yeah. care about. There is a certain comfort in not having to sit with someone else's pain because really it's the sitting with your pain will bring up pain in me. And yes. it's really hard for people to sit with, with people's pain. It's, it's really tough. But that just means that you know, many who are grieving are not given that permission and that space that they need to feel the feelings because... Yeah. The reality is that, you know, grief will happen to all of us and that someone said in a podcast I was listening to, you know, the terrible thing that's happened is not grief. The terrible thing is that you've lost someone that you care yeah. about. True, true. And it's, it is so true what you say about when we sit with someone else's grief, it brings up our own. So now, of mm-hmm. course, I've had a lot of therapy and healing and self-inner work for my grief. But even now, if I am working with clients who've experienced deep recent grief, it is something that, you know, kind of stirs me differently because I know that pain. It's familiar. I know how bad it hurts. 
And thankfully, you know, yes, I choose to sit with them through it, but it's not easy. You know, I need some self-care after that to be able to manage that work. What kind of things does it stir when you sit with someone else's grief? What is it that you need to sit with yourself? It brings up some of the old pain. It brings, it, it's almost kind of a little reminder of how much it hurt. And I think I can relate to the person in a deeper way as well, because it's not theoretical, it's not distant. It's been my own lived experience as well in different ways. So yeah, I guess, and I'm anyway someone who, you know, does feel strongly in the room. So this one is felt more strongly than some of the other emotions. And do you think when you're sitting with someone else who's grieving, knowing what you know about grief, what is it that they need from you? I think space to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel upset, to feel confused without me even trying to fix it in the moment. So validation, acceptance, you know, letting them know that what they're feeling is normal. It's understandable. Of course they feel this way. And eventually when they're ready, you know, finding ways to cope, finding little lights of hope in the future, while also still acknowledging that this is very real and this is very painful and probably will be for a while. Some bit of it might always hurt. You get better with it. It'll get smaller. It'll get less sharp. But some bit of it will probably always hurt. At least that's been my experience with it. The other big grief experience that I had was when I was 19 years old. So I'm from India and we have very close-knit extended family systems. So I grew up with my uncles and aunts. You know, I spent every weekend there and they, they were a large part of raising me. And so when I was 19 and they were traveling and we got a phone call from the family saying that there had been an accident and there were six of them on the trip. So two uncles, two aunts and two kids and five of them passed away on the spot. And there was only my little cousin sister who survived. And yeah, so that was, that was quite big. And this was, of course, this was my mother's brother and the family. So she was, of course, really, really traumatized. And I sprung into action, trying to take care of the family, packing their bags, helping take care of my grandma, answering phone calls, you know, that kind of stuff. And I remember that my brother was studying away at the time in a different city and he had exams going on. So we weren't meant to tell him for a few days till that got over. So I would talk to him and, you know, pretend that everything's okay and it's fine. And yeah, so I, I didn't, I couldn't really grieve at the time because there was a lot that I had to hold together. And that led to an extended experience of grief. Of course, it came back later and, you know, I ended up experiencing some depression and some PTSD with it. So eventually that's kind of, that's how it showed up. And I had to go for therapy for it. Thankfully I did. And it felt like this is something that could never, never feel okay because it was just so deep. I had lost parent figures and I had lost so much in one moment. But of course they were my uncles. They'd left kids behind who were now orphans. And it was just, yeah, it was a nightmare. The whole, the whole family was in shambles. And 
So I remember, you know, a part of me also feeling that, wow, I'm overreacting. Because I remember like, you know, with the stress and the grief, my hair had started falling out in chunks and I developed PCOD and, you know, all of these physical health symptoms as well. I remember thinking to myself, but, but they're not my parents. You know, thankfully, my parents are, are alive. They're here and they have kids left behind. You know, they get to have these reactions. But why am I in the space that I am? Yeah, so that, that was another major hit with grief. So interesting, isn't it? As you're describing this horrendous, you know, traumatic experiencing, experience of losing suddenly, like that. That's the thing is it's also, not only is it grief, it's also traumatic. So it's yeah. double and hurting so badly and yet not having permission to express those, those feelings. And what happened is, you know, like Carl Jung says, you know, what we resist persists, you know, yeah. it kept going bigger and bigger and bigger. And the kind of stories that we tell ourselves about grief, right? What is allowed and what's not allowed and how much should we grieve and for how, how long and, you know, is this normal? And often it's because we're faced with expectations around grief. You know, what is, you know, the, the, the amount, but also, you know, whether we have permission to grieve about certain things. And, and those are placed upon us in the community partly because I think it's very hard for people to witness others that are grieving and we don't have rituals anymore that give people this opportunity. So, you know, often people do rush us. So I think that's different in different cultures, Emma, because okay. in, in my culture, we do have rituals for grieving and rituals kind of that help the family find support as well in the grieving. I think it's also... So like in, in, so I'm a Hindu, we, we follow that. Once there is a death, we have a 12 day mourning period where kind of, you know, there are prayers and rituals every day and people get together and support the family and all of that bit happen. But here kind of, I was away, I was still at home taking care of my grandmother and my parents went to, to the location where the deaths had happened. And I think I didn't allow myself to grieve because I had to take care of my grandma. And I also felt that if I actually allowed myself to feel the, the sheer magnitude of what had just happened, I didn't know how I would survive it, how I would cope with it. It just felt very big. And it didn't sound yeah. like you had many people that were supporting you. You felt more mm. responsible to support others at the yeah. time. And that's often, you know, in a way, what we find ourselves is that we don't have time to grieve right because there's so much happening our lives are so busy and there's so many demands placed upon us that we don't give ourselves the the daily the regular opportunity to grieve which we really need because it is ongoing and and it's it's almost like you are carrying it on your own yeah yeah because there's no, there's no time for it now. You can't right now. There are more important things need that need to be done. And of course, yeah, a lot of times it's self-imposed as well, right? The roles that we put ourselves through, that we must yes. do this and we should do that and we should not do that. Yes. Yes. And yet grief has this tendency to just, especially in the early stages, just pour out of you, mm. whether you want it or not. It will just find a way 
to come out. Like I've heard stories of people, you know, who grieve and, you know, are with their children and suddenly it'll just hit them. And they wonder why it's often because they don't give themselves the opportunity to, to, to grieve, whatever, you know, that means for them. And that freedom, I think in a way we need to stop judging ourselves and we need the community to ju stop judging us for how we grieve. Because somebody once described the sort of ugly crying, you know, of grief, that it can be so consuming that it's just not pretty. I thought, mm. why does it need to be pretty? Why does grief look good? And I think there is, there is a lot of self-imposed, but also judgment around us. Like we're going to be too much for somebody. Yeah. Well, it also seems, as we were talking a moment ago, that people get into roles. And you said, Mahima, that you had to kind of step up yeah. and take care of things. And, you know, there are one or two people in my family that that's their job. And I'm grateful to them. But then there's the delayed reaction, you know, what, what they call parasympathetic rebound, where, you know, your adrenaline and your sympathetic nervous system kick in and you're, you know, you're dealing with it. Like, you know, first responders in accident scenes, you know, they're just doing what they do. And then later, woof, you know, it hits them, what they just experienced. And it can be very physical and, you know, it's going to affect your body. It's going to affect your you know, your hormones, it's going to, you know, your hair is going to fall out. I mean, all of these terrible things that are manifestations of the fact that you've just been through a trauma and your body is, you know, letting you know that it's not happy about it. And yeah, it's not pretty. Something actually grief is really is like all other emotions. You know, we just can't control them. We can't control our grief same way we can't control our often how anxiety shows up. And I think that the, the piece with grief is, is the reality is just like every other emotion. We're going to experience grief. And some of us will experience a lot of it. And, and yet most of us will not get to grieve, won't give ourselves permission, won't get the support from our surroundings and our community to grieve as much as we need to. And there's this kind of idea that it, you know, the kind of the five stages of grief, mm -hmm. which I find difficult because it has, it feels like there's a time frame. Like you go through these five stages and then you reach acceptance and then that's it. Right. And you can't, and you can't go, you can't go back. Can't go, can't go back to denial. You can't go back to bargaining or whatever it may be. That it's this linear thing when it's not. And I find that the, the anger is an interesting one because often people are surprised by their anger. People don't always feel anger with grief, but it sounds like you had some of that, Mahima, and you may still have some of that. And I think that's the harder one because people often feel angry with the person they've lost or, you know, angry with the world. How could this happen to me? And I think, you know, how could we not be angry because often the world doesn't support us. Often the world, you know, expects us to continue to do what we do or doesn't step in to help us continue to do whatever it is that we need to be doing. So no wonder people get angry when they grieve. 
And in this particular experience, you know, it also changed my relationship with my faith because I was angry with God. And more than angry, I think I, you know, questioned the existence of God. Because if, if there really was a God, he, she couldn't let this happen. Something so terrible, you know. And so it just, it made no sense anymore. So that was another loss, in fact, you know, to lose something that's been so central to our understanding of life. It's how we've grown up. It's how we, how we make sense of things. It's one of the compass, compasses that we use to find direction in life. And with, with this loss, you know, that compass lost its meaning. That if something like this could happen, then there surely must be no God. And if there is a God who has allowed this to happen, then what's the point? So tell us more about that journey. Where, where did that take you? I am still navigating that one. <laughs> so I am still navigating that one because we've grown up in, in a religious family, in a religious community. So the existence of God and kind of how we navigate our lives around the good and the bad is just something how we, that's how we think. And of course, while growing up, a lot of it has also been internalized that we do something because, because that's our, that's part of our values. We believe that's the right thing to do, not necessarily because that's what our religion expects us to do or prescribes us to do. But overall, finding my own understanding, my own sense of God, a higher power, of what I believe in and to what extent, that's something that I'm still navigating. So I, I don't know yet. There's just so much unfairness out in the world. It's always been there. This was just my personal experience with it. But yeah, I don't have an answer for that. Well, I think a lot of people are struggling with that these days. I mean, here in the United States, a day doesn't go by without more children being shot, you know, and you know, a lot of people are thinking that, you know, they're there clearly cannot be a benevolent God if this is allowed to happen. And a lot of people are struggling with that. It really shakes them to their core. It is a threat to the, the foundations of their lives, as you described it as well. People are very distressed and uncertain. And, you know, we don't have good role models for grieving. I mean, you don't see a lot of, you know examples of that, at least not good examples. So, I mean, how, how do we do this grieving thing? Particularly, you know, in, when, you're, when you're young, it's completely uncharted territory. Yeah. I think, as you say, this kind of about being young and feeling a little more lost with it or feeling the need for more permission or more of a framework of how should one grieve and, you know, how does this work? Probably that's something that hopefully does evolve a bit as we grow older, or maybe it's just the work that I do now. Because so my my more recent experiences with grief have have been so there's this term that I came across, I struggle to pronounce it, but I'm gonna try. It's called disenfranchised grief. It's experiencing loss and grief where people might feel that you don't really have the right to feel grief much. It's minimized or it's dismissed. So, you know, it's not right to grieve on your part. And that's something that I went through more recently. So in 2021, I experienced <clears throat> two 
miscarriages, and they were they were they were termed chemical miscarriages, which I find quite annoying. So they were early miscarriages, and they couldn't find physical evidences of a fetus, you know. But of course, you know, I had the HCG, so I my body was pregnant. But somewhere along the line, the, the physical markers were not there, so it's called a chemical pregnancy. And but for me, as the mum, how does that make a difference? Because for me, I was pregnant. For me, I had a baby in me, which then wasn't there which died, which kind of didn't come to life. And the fact that uh, a pregnancy sac or a fetus couldn't be seen on a scan didn't really have any meaning for me. But because it was that, and it was relatively early on in my journey, I had friends telling me that it's okay, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, it was just a chemical pregnancy. There was no baby. This, you haven't actually lost a baby because there was no baby. Well, actually, there was for me, because obviously in, in your first trimester, it's not like you're feeling the baby kick. It's, it's more of just that physical, that emotional, that mental sense that there is that baby. And for me, that was very strongly there. But it was very much that oh, it's okay. It was just a chemical pregnancy. Or, you know, it's okay. You were just a few weeks along. At least, thankfully, you were not months along. Or the fact that, well, at least you already have a child and you know you can get pregnant, even... Even in the emergency room, as the doctor is confirming that, okay, yes, you know, it's a miscarriage and you've lost the baby. But the good news is you can start trying right away because we don't need medical help to get anything out. And yeah, so that was, that was an interesting, you know, not fun experience to go through. But because I think because I'm older, because I'm a therapist and I understand these things a little differently, I did advocate for myself this time that no. This is painful and this is big and this matters to me. For me, I have lost a baby and I get to grieve. And it's okay if I want to ugly cry. I, I will ugly cry as much as I want to. If it's uncomfortable for you, that's okay. We'll meet after some days what we want. So I did this time create the space to be with my grief as much as I feel, as much as I felt like I needed to. Wonderful. I think it's... Just heartbreaking, isn't it? All those messages that you experienced that were so sort of incongruent with your experience and how those around you were insisting that your experience was wrong and how brave of you to be able to stand out for what you needed because so many don't and think that there's something wrong with them because they don't give themselves what they need because others are not supporting them or are challenging them to feel differently. And that discrepancy can be incredibly painful. So it's wonderful that you were able to do that for yourself and give yourself the time and the boundaries with others to let people know what you needed, not what they needed, right? Because it's often about them. Yes, that's true. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody wants to tidy things up, but, but, being invalidated is so damaging. I mean, in so many situations, people need to be heard. People need to be validated. You know, you don't have to agree with them, but you have to acknowledge their reality, their experience. In fact, I, I don't have the study, but the, I might sort of find it, but there was a study in MRI scans that, you know, invalidation 
is as painful as physical pain. The brain responds similarly. You know, it's such a, a painful experience for humans to have their emotions dismissed. Well, it's it's this the main contributing factor to an adolescent positive recovery from being abused is whether or not they're believed and they're validated. If they're not, you know, no, 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 that never happened or, you know, whatever. It's, it's a major, the major contributor to poor outcome in terms of recovering from that abusive experience. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? To have our realities denied is just so painful. However small, sometimes. If it's something that you know, we see differently, it can hurt a lot. So as, as I enter, uh, I guess this is my eighth decade, having just turned 70 and having lost a number of friends already, you know, to various illnesses, you know, loss and grief is just becoming more of the life that people my age have. And it's, it's something to be wrestled with and uh, to accommodate it to, I guess. But it's, it's quite striking how that suddenly accelerated in the last few years. I, I, years ago, I'm, I, a therapist in Seattle sent a, a 70-year-old guy to me saying, uh, you know, you need to see this guy. He needs to see you. And I said, is he aware that I'm a child psychologist? And this other therapist in town who I greatly admire said, oh, yeah, but he needs to see you. So he and I met for maybe 10 sessions and, you know, did some nice work together. He was delightful. And I probably got more out of it than he did. But the thing that I took from it was he was talking about getting old. He was you know, a few years older than me at the time. And he said, when you get old, you experience a lot of loss. He said, you know, your knees start to go bad, you know, friends die, you retire, and you lose your sense of identity. He said, it's like playing chess. So when you play chess, you lose pieces. It's part of the game. But you don't quit. Even if you lose an important piece, you know, like a rook or even your queen, he said, you, you adjust your strategy based on the pieces you have left, and you play the best game you can. And I just thought that was an amazing metaphor. That, yeah. And I think about that, you know, not infrequently as, you know, my knees start to go and, and I lose friends and trying to adjust to retirement. But, you know, I adjust my strategy based on the pieces I have left and I play the best game I can. Lovely. It's really lovely. And I guess that that's, you know, ultimately the goal is to no matter no matter what life the cards we get dealt is to play our best game. Right. Um, you know, and as, yeah, I guess, you know, age and grief do come hand in hand at whatever stage you're at. The more you love, the more you lose. The more you see, the more you want. It's, it's just, it's just continuous, isn't it? And, and I think, you know, we're all grieving on so many levels. I think about, you know, the world, we're all grieving for the loss of our, planet in different ways. We grieve, you know, with the news, we grieve with, you know, as we see our children getting older, we grieve when we lose a friendship. It's just, grief is everywhere. We even do some pre-grieving as 
Ella and I were talking the other night about already anticipating her oldest going away in, what, five years? Yes, still five years. I'm already grieving, exactly. <laughs> Ahead. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, again, if we didn't love, we wouldn't grieve. Uh, mm -hmm. it's so all these things are tied directly back to our values. Absolutely. Yeah, very much tied together, aren't they? They go hand in hand. You can't, ha you can't care and not hurt in some way. So maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, one of some of the practical tips that, you know, when we're grieving can help us with the process. What do you find useful, Mahima? Or what do your, what do your clients find useful? I think for me, some of the things that I really had to do was <laughs> go to therapy and mm. get support with that, get, you know, taken care of to have someone hold me while, while I went through the ugly crying and all of that without. So I think the safety of, of that, which allows you to collapse some of those walls that you've built up is really important. So yeah, I mean, that was important. Therapy and kind of whatever modalities work with you for that. I personally did hypnotherapy and EFT tapping, and that was useful for me because it also kind of works with my body. I tend to channel a lot of my emotions in my body and it ends up in pain and illness and all of that wonderful things. So <laughs> working through the body is really important for me. And I think taking time to mm -hmm. listen to what your body needs, whether that's rest, whether that's going out, whether that's talking to a friend, whether that's quiet, doing that, so really kind of taking care also to slow down, finding where you might want to withdraw, finding where you might want to connect, finding if you just want to take a break and when and to what extent you're ready to re-engage with your work, with your people, and, you know, taking time to that. And I think a lot of validation and compassion for yourself, that what I'm feeling is, is valid. Of course, I feel this way. This is painful. And I don't need to be okay before I'm okay. I don't need to, you know, take care of, oh, this is going to be worrying or upsetting or inconveniencing others. So really prioritizing my own wellness, my own health, my own needs over the needs of others for a change. Also, with the people we do feel comfortable with, allowing them to be there for you. Because a lot of times we don't. Oh, you have your own stuff going on. Yours is so much worse than me or I don't want to be a burden on you, blah, 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 those things. But actually allowing people to be there for you. So, yeah. I was also listening to a podcast that was talking about grief, and they were suggesting having these kind of microwaves during the day to experience some of the grief, to make sure that we give ourselves opportunities because life is so busy. And, and ways some people find it very helpful to have little rituals to remember the people we've lost. Like, yes, that's very yeah. true. So for me, like, especially with the pregnancy loss, because it was already not real in many ways, I almost wanted to have a little marker of something which reminds me that this wasn't in my head. This wasn't something I made up. This was actually something that happened. And for me, that was just almost, you know, 
yeah, a way to make it real and not end up gaslighting myself out of it eventually. So like a little note, I kept the dates of, you know, when I conceived, when I found out when I was pregnant, when I lost the baby. And I had even like thought up the name and everything. So I wrote a little note to the baby that, you know, never was. It's just kind of as a physical thing. And I had a little, a little rainbow pin that I got as a, I don't know, as a memento of losing that baby that you existed for a little while. But you existed. That's lovely. Exactly. That's beautiful. That's exactly right. And to, you know, some people talk about, you know, celebrating birthdays or bringing them to dinner, having them at the dinner table, talking about it, you know, the grandparent or the loved one we've lost and have different ways to remember and cherish that person still being a part of your lives, even if they're not actually physically present. So one of the things that's so beautiful in this, in, in my religion, is that every year on the day that the person passed, we do acts of charity mm. to commemorate that person. Also kind of religiously to believe that it helps their soul pass over or whatever. But I think just as a way to honor that person. So we'll often also kind of give away things. We'll make donations, but we'll also feed people with what was the favorite things of the person who passed. So that's quite nice. And then often kind of we do that sometimes even for their birthdays that we'd go to, you know, shelters or to orphanages or to just kind of where there is need and we'd go and donate. We'd go and kind of, yeah, do these things. So beautiful. Lovely. I love that. I think that sounds really important and such a sort of, such a nourishing way to remember a loved yeah. one, to keep them alive in our hearts. So I guess we should really wrap up. This has been a beautiful conversation, Mahima, and it's, it's been wonderful to get to speak about your grief and to hear about all the different ways, even within your culture, that, you know, you navigate grief. And it's, 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 it just shows how important rituals are in helping us manage grief. Manage is a wrong word. Help us experience our grief because it's not something we can manage. And yes, and thank you, you know, for sharing such difficult experiences and how you've navigated through it in the different stages of life because you've had quite a few at different ages as well. And it's, I can see all the courage and how much actually it's brought to you. It's brought you to its field. I can see how much empathy it's given you for those who do experience grief with you. And I imagine having a session with you talking about grief will be very different as a result of everything you have experienced yourself. Thank you. Thank you for having me. These are important conversations. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.